Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Kat. And we're Sorting Hat Chat. And today we are sorting Howl's Moving Castle, both the book and the movie, by Diana Wynne-Jones and Miyazaki. What would you say are some of the major differences between the book and the movie? Because a lot of what we want to talk about, I think, is how sortings do or don't differ across the two adaptions. They're different mediums, and so they inherently have different ways they're going to present us information. That's why I like books often better than movies, is the characters are just so much more shallow in the movie. You have a lot less time with them. You do, and that makes it harder to watch the development. It makes it harder to get in a lot of the details about how they react to things and how their relationship changes. I just find it a little bit frustrating because I love Sophie and Howell so much and I'm just like, no, what did you do with my characters? They're so different. Yeah. Howell is so nice. He's not a piece of shit in the movie. It's very confusing. It's really weird. I don't like it. I miss piece of shit Howell. (laughs) He's so noble and it's weird. It's a really different experience. And she's nice. She is. She's not like, she's still got a little bit of grouch to her. But, like, if you look at, like, the, the slime scene, right, in the book and the movie. Yeah. The way Sophie interacts with that is really different, right? In the book, she, she's like, the only reason I care about this and I'm dealing with his temper tantrum is he's literally going to kill Calcifer. So, fine, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do something. And in the movie, she's like, oh, no, I got to help. He's sad. And it's it's a really different interaction. Yeah, she ignores Calcifer. She doesn't even try to save Calcifer. And she has her own mini tantrum about how she's never felt beautiful in her whole life and storms off. Yeah, there's a different relationship with, with beauty as a theme in the book and the movie, I feel like. And I'm not entirely sure what the difference is, but there is one. Maybe Maybe this is a little too cynical. I'm not sure. Because I do genuinely love the movie. I love Miyazaki. But I feel like in the book, the theme was more your personality matters and your looks matter kind of, but it matters more how other people perceive you than it does like whether or not you're objectively beautiful. And I felt like in the movie, it was more like, no, you've always been beautiful. You were just old and had bad self-esteem, but you've always been super gorgeous as opposed to the book where it was like, you don't have to be super gorgeous. Yeah, I feel like the in the movie there's a lot of discussion sort of about about self-worth and self-love. It's them realizing that they really are beautiful people, you know, in a in a non-physical way underneath the things that are happening to them, whether it's the old curse or whether it's the monster that Hal's becoming. It's both of them helping to the other identify that deep down they are really, really beautiful and worth loving. And that conveys itself physically through the magic as well but the story is about them being good people whereas in the book I feel like it's a lot more about there's a lot of discussion of perception as opposed to the physical manifestations that you get in the movie in the book there's also a lot of who are you really deep down but a lot of it ends up being about perception there's all these perceptions of how he has all these names and you're also getting with things like Fanny her her stepmother and the way she sees Fanny, and then the way Martha, her sister, talks about Fanny, and then them coming to a realization by the end that Fanny is this other person entirely, that she's also a young woman 
who's trying to do the best of a bad situation and does love her daughters and her stepdaughters, but she's also trying to live and be happy. And some of it comes from, they also enter things of perception depending on context. Like when Sophie first meets Hal in the market, she's like, oh my God, he's so old, he's in his 20s. And then she meets him as an old woman and goes, here is this tiny baby child. And depending on where people are, they perceive other people differently. And they, you get that theme over and over. I feel like there's less of a theme of perception in the movie. I think in the movie, it's more about how they're actually changing. And in the book, it's how they're changing how they see each other. Yeah, in the movie, it's almost like it's more about their own perception. And in the book, it's more about their mutual perception. Yeah, how they're reading what the other person is doing. Especially because Jones is so good at, at dropping both the character's interpretations into her scenes, but also giving you enough context that you often understand what's really happening is not what the character is perceiving. Yes. Without her telling you that explicitly, because she's wonderful. She is. She's so good. Uh, yeah, the unreliable narrator kind of angle of the book adds so much depth that the movie mm -hmm. just, like, can't really include. It's hard to do an unreliable narrator when it's so visual. Yeah, it, it's like you were saying about, about mediums, where they just have inherently different attributes because of what kinds of stories they can tell. And I think one thing that the movie and the book both do, which is really interesting, there's an interview with, with Miyazaki where he talks about, like, I forget how he put it exactly, but moments of silence in the narrative where you can, um, you know, where you can just stop and breathe, you know, where he just puts in laundry flowing on a line or light or characters just taking a break to do something really mundane. And he puts it through all of his films. And I think it's one of the things that makes them so magical. And it's also something that Diana Wynne-Jones does in her books, where she gives you moments of the characters just cleaning house where the character is just stopping on a ridge. And you get these moments of mundanity in these really, really magical plots. And I think that's something that, that happens in both both those mediums. It's a place where the book and the movie really talk to each other. Howl's Moving Castle has my favorite cleaning montage in all film. I know how you feel about cleaning montages, so. I love them so much. It is high praise. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot in the book about sort of predestined fate. But because of who you are and where you came from, your circumstances, again, there's paths you're expected to take. And you have a lot of characters who play with that in different ways. But like the being the eldest of three and Sophie thinking that dooms her versus Martha's supposed to go on adventures, but what she wants to do is get married to Michael and have 10 babies. One of the other parallel paths of, of circumstance changing the future is Howell and the Witch of the Waste, I thought, have some really interesting parallels because the Witch of the Waste and Howell, they both made the same trade with their heart and the demon. They both caught a falling star. Howell talks about how the Witch of the Waste likes seeing herself as the lone flower blooming in the waste. And he talks about how pathetic he finds that. And that just hits like right on the head of like, oh, Howell, that upsets you so much because you kind of feel that. You can imagine that once the witch was someone who would give her own heart away so that a falling star didn't have to die. Maybe she did it for power back then, maybe she didn't, but I, I like to imagine that 
the witch was once someone kind of like Hal, who did it for a good reason. Yeah, and they have a similar vanity to them both. Both of them care a lot about being beautiful. And and both of them have that stripped away um, at some point. I think especially in the movie with Howl turning into a more literal monster than we get in the book. Yeah, with Howl in the book, the, the most stripped he gets is uh, he goes out without doing his hair at one point. But that does, you know, bring a curse down on his head. So pretty severe. I loved that moment because there was foreshadowing to it at an earlier point. Yeah. Where it was just like, you'll know that Howell's really in love with someone when he leaves without doing his hair. The stuff with, with Howell and Calcifer um, is one of the things that helped me feel like I could sort him. Because Howell, he looks like a Slytherin primary a lot of the time. I don't think he is. I think he's a Hufflepuff. And one of the big, I think, arguments in favor for him being a Hufflepuff primary is the fact that when a star fell into his hands, he literally tore the, his own heart out of his chest to give it to him so that Calcifer could live. Interesting. You see, I sorted him as a Gryffindor primary. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for a very similar reason, which is it seems like he only makes moral calls when they're right in front of his face. Yes, he does only make moral calls when they're right in front of his face, but they're always people. It's always a physical person standing in front of him who needs something. And then he takes Michael in off the streets and he undercharges the um, people in the port town. And he takes Sophie in and tries to get the spells off her. But it's always people-based, you know? It's never about ideals. He doesn't care about justice. That's true. He doesn't care about the war. He doesn't care about defeating evil as a specific goal. Oh, wait, are we talking about Book Howl or Movie Howl? Book Howl, because Movie Howl didn't give me enough information. <laughs> movie Howl, I think, might be a Gryffindor. I think, I think you're right that, that Movie Howl is, a, is at least a more solid call for, for Gryffindor primary. He's so noble. He's so noble. It seems very exhausting for him. Listeners can tell that we're not Gryffindor primaries, but we love you and respect you, Gryffindor primaries. So much. It seems tiring. It seems so exhausting. Every Gryffindor primary I know is tired all the time. But one of the things that made me think Gryffindor primary for Book Howl is all of the talk about how he's um, how he's a coward. And that's a very a mushy read for me because I can see that going either way. Um, I can see because anyone can be a coward. That's not, that's not intrinsic to any house. But just the way that he talks about not wanting to do things it made me think he might be a little bit of a burned Gryffindor interesting because I was definitely I think he's burned it's kind of a hard call on his burning because on one hand I feel like he's not I feel like he is doing a lot of the things that he wants to do morally right but I think you're right that he is burned and like not regardless of house I think he's burned, even though he does all the good things that his house is asking of him. He's helping people and taking them in and, you know, saving the prince. But he feels the need to trick himself into it. He feels like he's not a good person, even though he does good things. He feels like he has to force himself into doing them. I think you see a lot of the sources in that Wales chapter, in the way his sister talks to him. He's been told, it seems, for a really long time that he's a screw up that he can't do things well, that he's not generous and interesting and useful and capable. Even though 
when you actually look at all the things that are being accomplished around him, he clearly is. He's just going about it in different ways. Even though he's doing all the things, the fact that he thinks he's a bad person, so he has to force himself to do it, is where you get this, this he's a burned house, even though if you look at like his results sheet, he doesn't seem like he's someone who's not doing everything he can. And that does smack a bit of, of Hufflepuff primary. But I, I'm wondering if maybe he's coming from a Gryffindor like social context. I could see that. He thinks he should be a Gryffindor. Because that would explain his rhetoric about being a coward, even though he's doing a lot of what he feels he he ought to be doing. Um, and that actually made me think of something else, which is that he has so many different identities in different communities. Goes directly to your, to your theory of him being a Hufflepuff primary. Yeah, because he's embedding himself all these places. Oh, and when he talks about his sister, he talks about Wales. He doesn't talk about it as, man, I miss my niece who I adore. Or he talks about, I love Wales so much and Wales doesn't love me. And that's something that's really hard for him. Oh, that's so, okay, yeah. No, you sold me Hufflepuff primary in the book, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a burned Hufflepuff. But, but. Slytherin secondary, I think. He's a Slytherer outer. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the book, definitely. In the movie, I think he is maybe still, but it's a closer call. But in the book, he is the most Slytherer outer I have <laughs> yet met in fiction. He's such a Slytherer outer. And like, it's something that I think it's one of the really interesting places the book and the movie differ. He slithers out of things in both the book and the movie. But I don't think he's a Slytherin secondary in the movie, because in the movie, he doesn't like it. And one of his growth arcs is realizing that he actually wants to stand firm. And in the book, he's just going to continue being a trash fire forever and be pretty satisfied about that. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. Because the book, he's got growth arc, but it's all about... It's almost more about the reader and Sophie coming to understand and comprehend him better and be like, yeah, this lovable pile of on-fire trash is where I want to lay my affections, absolutely. I understand more fully now the ways in which he is a beautiful pile of trash. But you don't actually change Howl in the book. You just get to know Howl and go, yes, this is my garbage man. Yeah, one of my favorite lines of howls that I think goes directly to his secondary is when he yelled I'm a coward only way I can do something this frightening is to tell myself I'm not doing it which is him using his Slytherin secondary on himself yes and I'm wondering if that Slytherin secondary because that's how he gets things done is one of the reasons why he ended up kind of coming from from a family and a world that that told him he wasn't brave and good because his impulses are very brave. He helps so many people over the course of the book. He does it in ways that, that aren't straightforward, that aren't necessarily like directly honorable or obvious. Yeah, and if he grew up being told that nothing he could do was good or right or worthwhile, then I see why he would kind of come at everything sideways. Yeah, and so I think like the criticism of his methods, of his secondary made him burn his own primary because he took them on as, oh, I'm a bad person. 
my morals are bad. I am not good. And so he burned his Hufflepuff, even though his Slytherin secondary keeps churning away being slithery and helpful and effective. And still accomplishing his goals. Just meanwhile, he's telling himself that he is not good at accomplishing his goals. It's it's like he's going around accomplishing the goals of his primary, but he put his own hand over his eyes. I'm not doing yes. it. I'm a coward. Nothing's happening here. Exactly. And it's beautiful. But yes, that's that's book how, I think. For for movie how, I think not a Slytherin secondary, but like he has a model, but his his journey is he he learns that he, that's not what he wants. And it's not satisfying. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble with his secondary in the movie. I thought it maybe was a Ravenclaw or maybe mm-hmm. was a Hufflepuff secondary. It didn't and now I have a prediction. You're going to have sorted him as a Gryffindor secondary, the only one I didn't consider for him. <laughs> Am I right? Um, my first instinct for him is to say, because we're having such a hard time sorting him, my guess is burned is where he's starting. Yeah. Um, which we should find out, like, what secondary is under all that char. But, like... But I agree, though. Definitely burned. First point of discussion, burned secondary, which just makes our job super hard. Yeah, um, and I agree, I think, Slytherin secondary model, because he's all charm, and then he's all tantrum, and then he's all charm, and then he's all tantrum. It's interesting, because Bookhile is also charm and tantrum, but for him, somehow, it's a lot more wholesome. Yeah. That's an okay place for him to live. Whereas Movie How needs to, like, get over that and learn healthier coping mechanisms. Yeah, I think, I think Book Howl has a bit more consistency underneath the charm and tantrum. There's more mm-hmm. sass. There's more asides. There's more of like that howl bitchiness just throughout all of his moods. And movie howl is just off and on. And also I think book howl has a Sophie who gives him as good as he, as she gets. Whereas movie howl has a much nicer Sophie. For that romance to work, they had to meet each other at different places. Yeah, if Howell had been as much of a trash fire in the movie as he is in the book, then it would have just been him abusing Sophie. Wouldn't have been good, right? And a lot less satisfying, where he's actually noble deep down, and he's in a different way than Bookhal is. Bookhal's also noble in his way, but he's a lot more traditionally noble in the movie, and he's coming to like realize and accept that part of himself. You know, there's that inner beauty thing that they're doing. Um, I did have Gryffindor secondary as a possibility. <laughs> I think Sophie is one, book and movie. Really? And, yeah. No, I thought Sophie's Hufflepuff secondary, book and movie. Fun, excellent. I thought she's incredibly Hufflepuff secondary. She's got a lot of Hufflepuff happening, I think. But she's so, she's burned at the start of the book, I think. Do you agree? I'm open to the idea. I hadn't. Okay. I'll make my case. Yeah. All right. She starts out the book convinced she is going to be a failure, that she can never succeed at anything because she's the eldest of three. So she might as well not try and she'll just sit here and it's fine. And and the book is a story of all of these extenuating circumstances forcing her to come out of her shell. And even in like that first chapter, 
she's at her happiest and most satisfied when she is snapping at customers and telling them their hats are ugly. She gets so much joy out of just saying whatever honest, flat thing comes to mind. But she keeps trying to repress herself because that's not the kind of person she's supposed to be. And then later on, as she comes into her power, all her power comes from talking to things, believing in them, and telling them what they are. You know, her magic is literally, she talks to things and encourages them or berates them into doing what she wants. You know, she's inspirational. She doesn't build communities or even like work so much as attack things. But there's so much about Sophie's being dutiful, especially in the book. There's that one part where Martha was talking about how um, mother knows you don't have to be unkind to someone in order to exploit them. She knows how dutiful you are. She knows you have this thing about being a failure. She's managed you perfectly and got you slaving away for her. Yeah, and so I think that's coming from the burning. I think the sense of duty has burned her secondary and felt like she has to repress all this Gryffindor. Oh. All this need for honesty, right? Because at the end, she's just shooting from the hip about everything and meeting how toe-to-toe, you know, their romance is like 40% yelling matches. She likes to be herself and she's so bothered whenever she has to lie, which to be fair is totally also a Hufflepuff secondary thing. But she... She charges. Okay. You know, she doesn't sympathize. She doesn't empathize. She just meets people where they are. That's true. And, I, and I'm and i wondering, maybe like a Hufflepuff primary is where the duty is coming from and that's what's squishing her? I think it might be a Hufflepuff secondary model um, for her primary. I think she's a Ravenclaw. Awesome, because I'm just flummoxed about her primary. So tell me about Ravenclaw. Yeah, I mean, I was hesitant at first because it's in so much of the writing um, is Sophie's belief in the world as she's been told it is about how because she's the eldest, she can do, you know, she, she can't be successful. She's doomed to failure. And I was like, oh, that's heavy handed. It's probably something other than Ravenclaw primary. But I actually think that it is just, it's, I think it's Ravenclaw primary, even if it's a bit dramatic, because a lot of what she does throughout the book is see herself in different situations. And I feel like Howell's kind of pushing her out of her system and into a new system where she has more belief in herself. There's the line where, um, she was within an ace of leaving the house and setting out to seek her fortune until she remembered she was the eldest and there was no point. She took up the hat again, sighing. Which she believes that the world as it is, the world as she understands it as such, that she can't accomplish those things. She can only accomplish other things. And I see how that's also related to her burning her belief that she, you know, it doesn't matter what she does, she can't succeed. But I think it's I think it's tied to a philosophy about the kinds of things she's allowed to do, as opposed to her own competence. Yeah, I like Ravenclaw Primary. She has this sort of set of rules of the way she thinks the world would be. But she doesn't seem very happy in them. No, I don't think she is. And one of the things that makes me hesitate is that 
there's no resolution of her old system becoming a new system. We don't get something toward the end of the book where she's like, oh, this is how the world actually is. Yeah, she doesn't get that satisfaction. Yeah, so that is one of the things that makes me hesitate on on her being a Ravenclaw primary. Maybe it's a Ravenclaw primary model, and it's something that she deconstructs over the course of the story with Howell's help until she gets at her actual primary. Because what's she doing at the end of the story? Like, how is she being driven forward? I mean, mostly her concern for Howell. Yeah. But I don't get Slytherin primary off of her. No, I don't think so. But I do get, I think, internal primary. I feel like by the end, she's thrown away a lot of those rules that were holding her down. And she's now acting based on how she reacts to things. When she looks at them and how they, how they make her feel. So she does things like she lets Miss Angorian in. She, um, you know gets angry on the behalf of her sisters, on the behalf of Howl, on... I feel like there's a lot of moments where Sophie sees something happening in the world and gets offended about it. Like helping the dog when he's tied up at the beginning or talking to the scarecrow. Like, injustice bothers her. Yeah, and Howl's inconsistency with his own morality bothers her in a way that does kind of speak to her understanding of the world through ideals. Yeah, she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, this person's sad. Yeah. It's like when she was talking to the king, she said, like, half the time I think he doesn't care about what happens to anyone as long as he's all right. But then I find out how awfully kind he's been to someone. Then I think he's just kind when it suits him. Only then I found out he undercharges poor people. I don't know, your majesty. He's a mess. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm wondering if she starts with the Ravenclaw primary model. And then deconstructs it as a way to, like, free herself to be the actual grumpy, pissed off Gryffindor primary that she is. Okay, so we're thinking she goes from burned primary, burned secondary, modeling Ravenclaw primary, Hufflepuff secondary, into the fiery Gryffindor Gryffindor (laughs) we love. Yes, and she ends just ready with her bucket full of weed killer to hurl it at people who piss her off. Yeah, and I think, because at the beginning, she does a lot of Ravenclaw ticks. Like, she goes and she she talks to Martha, and Martha points out some new information, and then she goes home and she sits and she thinks about it for days, the narrative tells us, right? And so that's a really Ravenclaw-looking thing. But it, it does seem like, later on, that stops being as much of a, a thing for her. Instead of sitting and thinking and trying to renegotiate, she goes out and, like, throws weed killer on things and stomps around and it's more about dealing with how she feels about something than thinking about how it relates to her rules of how the universe works what about movie version movie movie sophie i don't know she's just so nice she is really nice and it's a little um, disconcerting obfuscating yes (laughs) that too (laughs) um I think she might be a Gryffindor secondary as well mm-hmm. because she looks, I, I, I'm torn with Hufflepuff because she's so nice and that's such a Hufflepuff thing, but she's also got this in honesty, integrity, like charge at its streak as she comes into herself. 
And I did, I, I love the moment in the movie where she finds uh, Turnip Head and pulls him out of the bush, which made me think, oh, Hufflepuff secondary, you know, she's <laughs> working hard and, oh, look, she made a friend accidentally. She asked him for help finding a place to stay and then he ran off and then she turned around and was just like, ah, ha, ha, I'm so cunning. But she, she <laughs> but she had just asked for what she actually needed, and then he gave her what she asked for. But she thought she had been so cunning to secretly ask for. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. So not a Slytherin secondary. Um... <laughs> Maybe that's why I found. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so cunning, <laughs> Sophie. So cunning. Yeah, so I I agree. I think I think she's a Gryffindor secondary. Um, she does have that niceness um, that that looks like a Hufflepuff secondary, but I think that that's more about her duty in a in a similar way with the book. Yeah, she probably has a model or something or a performance. But there's there's a, there's a thing about honesty, and it's kind of I think one of the places where she and Hal meet in the movie. But I think they might both be Gryffindor secondaries. Mm-hmm. So they kind of find in each other that they there's this desire for honesty and integrity and like acting. That's true. And it is Howell's moment of of realization. Um well not moment of realization, but it's it's kind of when all of his character bits come together and he's like, Yes, I am going to go act. I'm going to do something right now. And she's like, Yes, me too. So it, it is interesting that that movie Sophie definitely builds in some ways more of a community than book Sophie. Like the ways in which like Turnip Head like becomes an ally for her and folks like that. Book Sophie, like Michael comes to like her eventually. Like there's a little family thing with the house stuff, but she doesn't like collect random bystanders who love her the way movie Sophie collects the witch and Turnip Head and the dog. Turnip head is sent there by Solomon. No, he is Solomon. And so he's, no, he's Solomon's magic or something. And he's trying to like fix that. Yeah, that's right. The skull is inside Howell's castle. And that's why Turnip head keeps following it. The the dog gets sent to protect Sophie, but it's because Letty sent the dog because the dog loves Letty. Um, Because the dog is half Solomon and half Justin. I love Diana Lynn Jack. Um, (laughs) So she she gets a lot of the same like plot help from these characters, but she doesn't get them because of things she does. She gets them because her Slytherin sister is like, go protect my sister who is too nice and it's going to die. Or because like there's plot things happening around her. To some extent, that's the same thing in the movie, though, um, especially with the dog being um, being Solomon's dog. That's true, but I kind of felt like because she was nice to the dog is, like, why he hung around, right? Because he, like, turns on the witch, right? That's true, yeah. At the end, she's like, you should have checked in earlier. Yeah, so, like, he turns on the witch because Sophie's nice, and um, the witch ends up sort of on their side because Sophie's nice, and the the turnip wants to help. So that's that's going to be, like, either Hufflepuff or Gryffindor there. You know, it's one of the inspirational houses one of the one of the other bits from the movie that really stood out to me um, is initially when Sophie is headed out 
it seems like she's just going straight. It's not stated outright, but it seems like her plan was just to walk straight into the wastes to find the witch of the waste to tell her. <laughs> yes, I think so. Give me, give me my my youth back. <laughs> break your curse. That does seem like a Gryffindor secondary uh, problem solving tactic in a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, and I I could read it as Hufflepuff secondary too, just in the sense of all right, if that's where I need to go, then I guess I'd better start walking. But as opposed to community building, um, it is a very comically direct way to deal with the problem. Yeah, and I suppose we can kind of ask, with all of those allies that Sophie gets in the movie, is she community building or is she getting an army accidentally? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's one of the ways in which it's sort of a simplification but I think that is one way to differentiate between the way Hufflepuff secondaries collect people and the way Gryffindor secondaries accidentally collect people. One's a community and one is an army. I feel like maybe she's accidentally collecting an army. Because they look similar, but it's true that it doesn't feel like they're a big family at the end. It feels like they're all following her because they've realized she's the one who's going to save the day. Yeah. Yeah, they like her, they respect her, she th they think she's good. There's a, there's a following aspect. She's a Gryffindor secondary in both book and movie then, which is interesting because she comes off really differently in behavior in book and movie. There might be some gender performance things there, especially in the ways in which she looks like a Hufflepuff secondary. Because you have me convinced now that she's a double Griff, but like I, I came into this pretty sure she was a Ravenclaw Hufflepuff. She looks so Ravenclaw Hufflepuff. That's super strange. Especially at the beginning. Yeah. She's just so sad. Yeah, I think I think that's where I erred in my analysis, is I erred too hard on the beginning, and I didn't notice that it wasn't a renegotiation. It was a shift, as opposed to resolving it by just getting rid of the bits she doesn't like, but keeping her, her actual um, structures. In the movie, what do you think her primary is? Yeah, right? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> right? It's really hard. I feel like we don't get that much internality from her in the movie. We don't. I mean, it's it's a romance, ultimately. Which always makes it more challenging because all of the idealistic bits are skewed by their focus on each other most of the sorting we're getting is through her actions and how people react to her, which is why we could figure out her secondary. But for primary, it's got to come from when she's making moral decisions. So things like deciding not to kind of toss the witch when the witch gets um, depowered. Uh, so I'm going to go with not Slytherin primary. She helps too many people who she doesn't like to be a Slytherin primary. Yeah. Which leaves us with Hufflepuff Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. Well, I mean, it's just, it's hard to sort her because so much of what we see is her secondary. It's one of the limitations of the the medium of, you know, an hour and a half long movie where there's a bit of a moral railroad. We don't see her struggling with many decisions. One of the only decision decisions that she makes that was really a choice between like opposite extremes doesn't even tell us much because it's it's when she decided 
Calcifer, you need to move the castle even though Howell's not here. Howell needs to stop defending us. We can defend Howell. And I feel like we've accurately ruled out Slytherin, which would be one thing that that would weigh towards. But I don't think it rules out any of the other three houses either. No, it doesn't. And that was one of the that was one of the decisions she made that actually stood out to me. So it's kind of a mm-hmm. bummer that that we're not getting more data from that. I feel like the fact that she doesn't struggle very often with moral decisions, even though she's tossed into a bunch of new moral situations that she couldn't have predicted, means she's not likely a Ravenclaw. Yeah, I think that's right. Because I think. If she was a Ravenclaw, she would have had to do more renegotiating once she was put into all of these really different contexts. Um, so I think she's a she's a felt primary, right? She's either Hufflepuff or Gryffindor. She's figuring out her her morality on the go. And it does seem like she's interacting more with ideals than with people. Yeah. Um, okay. In in her sense of you know, this war is dumb. This is unjust. How will you need to do your duty? I'm not even sure she has all of those opinions in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I might have just made those up. Again, we lack a lot of internality from her. Yeah. It's fine. I'll just just make up stuff that didn't happen in the movie and we can see it based (laughs) on my headcanons. There we go. That's that's how we do things. Yeah. If they don't provide, we will provide for them. That's what fandom is for. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I get a Gryffindor primary feel just because I don't get a Hufflepuff primary feel. And mm-hmm. Yeah, again, there's a lack of community building. There is. Um... She doesn't super bond with stuff. Or she doesn't take very many, like, identity or morality or, like, connection prompts from the groups around her. I don't think we have enough data to solidly call it one way or the other. Okay, but Gryffindor secondary matches up. Yeah. And then she could be just entirely the same sorting as uh, Book Sophie. She could just be a Gryffindor Gryffindor, which is really interesting. I expect them to be completely different sortings because Book and Movie Sophie just feel like completely different people. I did want to bring up one other thing about Howell's primary, which... I, I still think we have him sorted correctly, but there was this one line at the end of the movie where he just explicitly stated, now I have something to fight for. It's you, Sophie. <laughs> That's why I'm going to do things now. I think that was just him being really romantically excited yeah, and motivated as opposed to being indicative of his sorting, but seeing as he just said a sentence that described the Slytherin primary morality, I thought it was worth tagging. Yeah, for sure. It's, I think the reason why that's not going to sway us to him being Slytherin primary is because even though he's saying that, he was fighting the war. Yeah. For ages before that. He was. <laughs> Did he just not notice? You may not have noticed, but now, like, he has something to live for as opposed to just fight for. Like, it seems like a healthier place for him to go, roughly. Um, I'm wondering if the fact that she's so Gryffindor is helpful for him there. Oh, maybe. Right, to have a companion 
in your morality and your certainty. Yeah, to have a partner in the fight. To have someone who will move Calcifer. <laughs> to have someone who can encourage you and hug you when you're covered with magical dark feather beastliness, you know, and to bring you back to humanity. It seems like that might be a good balance for them. He can fight as opposed to slowly destroy himself. Yeah. There is one other aspect, mm -hmm. though. Um, although I, I was going to tie it to, to uh, Slytherin primary, but I actually think it works just as well with Gryffindor primary, so I'll just do it in that, um, in that perspective. But the whole idea of him having given up his heart and that as a, an accidental analogy for burning, specifically. Oh, yeah, excellent. I love this conversation. One of my favorite visual and physical metaphors in both movie and book is how tearing the heart from his chest and giving it up. Um, but yeah, talk more about that. Go. Well, I was thinking about it in terms of the parallel between him and the witch. That Howell gets his heart back. And the witch not only doesn't, but the witch wants Howell's heart too. It made very it, it, it made the feeling of being burned, I think, very visceral in a way that worked really well for me. Because it's not just the absence of, you know, the heart of the the passion of, of whatever house, but it's also the ways in which that absence makes things kind of fester. The ways in which the witch, because she doesn't get her heart back, kind of de degrades. She's got a jealousy and a, and a bitterness and a yearning yes. for the heart that she gave up. That's making her want Howl's heart, want to destroy, you know, other people's chances at that thing. But it's still coming from the fact that she wants her heart. Yeah, and that reminds me of when the idea of when you're burned unburned people of your same house can really irritate you yeah and we talk about that a lot in the context of like griffin like burned gryffindors who look at non-burned gryffindors and are like you tiny naive sunshine child you're going to die and you're going to irritate me to death while you do it but i think the way it manifests with burned Slytherins is also really interesting. Yeah, because that's what it seemed to be the most direct metaphor for. Is as a burned Slytherin, you just you you shut down you shut down your vulnerability and your openness to connecting with other people in a way that's that's pretty directly exemplified in the idea of giving up your heart, giving up your ability to love someone. Yeah, and the witch is filled with this bitterness and this envy and this destructive coveting towards the power of Howe's heart. As a fun little tidbit, I thought we could briefly sort Calcifer. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Slytherin, Slytherin. <laughs> yeah, Slytherin, Slytherin. <laughs> we got it. Continue. Oh, we um, did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun because I think in the book, the way they talk about the falling star, I think, I think the world building is a little less clear in the movie to some degree. But in the book, the way they talk about falling stars and fire demons, they fall, and you know they, many of them just will die. But sometimes one doesn't want to die, 
and then someone will give up their heart to save them. And we talk about two main fire demons. We have Calcifer, who's Hal's fire demon, and we have the witch's fire demon, who's Miss Angorian. And Miss Angorian is far older and far, far crueler. Um, there's this implication, it made me explicitly stated, I don't remember in the book, that it is explicitly stated, fire demons don't have an innate ability to tell right and wrong. They're inherently amoral and they're inherently dangerous. Which is interesting when you look at Calcifer because he's, in some ways, I can see how you could argue that Calcifer is inherently amoral. But what he is, is a Slytherin primary because he loves people. He loves Hal, he loves Sophie, he loves Michael, he wants them to be okay and he'll go to lengths that they will be okay. Once he's free, he comes back because he loves them. And I'm wondering if that is something that he was given. I'm wondering if being handed Hal's heart and loving things through and with Hal, because it's throughout the book, the way Calcifer feels about people is clearly how Hal feels about people. You know, Hal lets people into the castle if Calcifer likes them, because Calcifer is his heart. And so I'm wondering if by giving Calcifer his heart to carry, how gave him the, the material and the opportunity to grow a Slytherin primary. I think in some ways the Slytherin primary is pretty well exemplified by the they don't know the difference between good and evil. They're immoral. If you don't consider, I like these people and they should be okay, a form of morality. Right? Which I feel like the people who are saying that in the book don't. But Calcifer is moral once he's given the ability to love. Whereas you might look at the witch and Miss Angorian who have no people they love. And that's why they are the type of evil they look like. You know, the heart is a charred husk. The witch's heart, the one Miss Angorian has. So I think the fire demons, the examples we have, are all Slytherin primaries. But Calcifer gets to be a healthy one because Howl is capable of loving people. Howl lets them in. It goes to the point also of how everyone has bits of all of the houses inside them. All categories are inherently false. Yeah, all categories are inherently false. All bits are complicated. These are ideal types. We all have some of all of them. And the fact that you could take Howell's heart out of him and give it to Calcifer, and that allows Calcifer to grow a Slytherin primary. But I think Calcifer is Slytherin Slytherin both book and movie, right? Calcifer is one of the characters who just carried really well and directly across the adaptions. Yeah, he doesn't change much. Um, no. I think, I think he sticks Calcifer in the movie is the most true to his own character in the book. Yeah, I agree. And they got a perfect uh, for the for the dub. Billy Crystal's perfect as, as Oh, Calcifer. absolutely perfect. No, Howell's Howell's voice in the dub just freaks me out. I think it's Christian Bale. It's just it's so deep. It's just Batman. It's just Batman. Actually, we just seen Little Women, the the older one. So uh-huh. it was both Batman and Laurie. And how, and we were like, we're not sure how we can, we're not sure how we can interact with this, actually. But yeah, okay, so movie Howl is Gryffindor, Gryffindor. 
Yeah. Um, Book Howl is Hufflepuff Slytherin, and he's much happier about himself. But he's also more of a disaster. He's more of a disaster, but he hates himself less for it. And then Movie Howl had that Slytherin secondary model on top, which he demolishes. I don't know. Watching watching Movie Howl just kind of makes me ache imagining Book Howl in those <laughs> yeah. in that position. Imagining what what would have to be happening in Book Howl's head for him to act as Movie Howl just kind of hurts me. No, they're really different. And then Book and Movie Sophie are also really different, but they have similar or the same sorting. Because we've got Gryffindor Gryffindor. Sophie, who starts the book with a Ravenclaw primary model and a Hufflepuff prime, a Hufflepuff secondary model, and she gets rid of the Ravenclaw. I think she keeps the Hufflepuff. Yeah. Um, she likes cleaning montages. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And then, movie her is also a Gryffindor secondary with some Hufflepuff modeling going on, and then her primary is either Hufflepuff or Gryffindor. It's just hard because her internality is a little limited. In terms of what we're able to see. And so if we want to just lean on the book and say she's a Gryffindor in the book, maybe she's a little bit more likely to be a Gryffindor in the movie, especially mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we don't see her doing any community building. Hey y'all, thanks for listening to us talk about How's Moving Castle. If you want to learn more about our sorting system... All of our posts are archived at sortinghatchats.wordpress.com or you can find us on Tumblr at Sorting Hat Chats. We also have an interactive quiz that walks people through our primary secondary system, which can also be found on the WordPress. Next time, we're going to be sorting the Chinese drama The Untamed, and we're very excited about it. All right, see you then.